I'm Pastor Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. Our goal is to provide young couples with the resources they need to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. We are so glad that you're here. Let's get to the lesson. Whose voice can calm any wave, Jesus? This morning we're going to talk about playing the long game. The, um, the key word for this lesson is sovereignty. I always second-guess myself when I write sovereignty, if I spelled it correctly or not. It's one of those words like necessary. I never really know if I'm spelling it correctly whenever I start writing it. Hey, that way it doesn't I mean. People can't read it. You never know. Is that dot over the I or the E? I don't know. It's right in the middle, right? I before E, except for when in cursive. Um, so we're going to talk about playing the long game with God and this idea of sovereignty. So the the first couple of verses of James chapter five, he's was he was uh, rebuking the the rich church members who were essentially taking advantage of these uh, these Christian refugees who were coming into the communities, and he was saying basically God's going to hold you accountable for what you've been doing, how you've been treating them. Um, we need to be considerate of people, especially our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, James has been on this consistent theme throughout his letter about um, how we shepherd and we steward the, the community of God and how we see other people uh, more than ourselves. Uh, so if, if last time in the first six verses we talked about the rebuke to the rich who are taking advantage of the poor, now we're going to talk about uh, the, the perspective of not necessarily the poor, but having to, to walk through trials and struggles um, with God's sovereignty in mind, thinking about the, the end result, the end game, right? Some of you probably have shared uh, the, uh, the unfortunate experience that I have of getting your teeth pulled. Um, I've had a lot of teeth, a lot of, of work done on my mouth uh, when I was younger and had a lot of teeth pulled. Um, one of the things about getting a tooth pulled is that you know that there will be an end eventually, but in the process, it is not pleasant. Right? But thinking ahead, thinking, okay, well, I just have to hold out for a little bit longer, a little bit longer, and then finally it's going to be over. Um, in, in many ways, uh, thinking about the end result in the midst of the, the challenge, the situation, allows you to have the courage to look forward, to, to get to the end. And this is what James is going to talk about uh, in these verses this morning. So we're going to read verses 7 through 12, and, uh, and then we'll go back and look at different, a couple of different little pieces here. Beginning in verse 7, therefore, okay, before we, before we even go past that, we got to remember, anytime we see therefore, we got to ask ourselves the question, what is it therefore? Um, because of what he had just said in the first six verses, so therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the soil, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not groan, brothers, against one another, so that you yourselves may be judged, may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who persevere. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. We're going to begin with the concept of establishing our hearts. He says in verse 7, he says, Therefore, in other words, because of the tension and the frustrations brought about by sin, 
we've got to be patient with each other because the coming of the Lord is at hand. In other words, keep in mind the end, the end result. And he uses this illustration of a farmer. Okay, so when a farmer goes out to his field uh, in the midst of the season, he is not just thinking about the present work that needs to be done. He's seeing the season as a whole, not just, okay, these are in the individual parts. And by doing that, what happens is he uh, keeps his perspective always thinking about the end game. As you are raising your children, it is very easy to get lost in the day-to-day challenges of dealing with these little sinners. Thinking about all of their little things that they do. And almost, in some cases, wishing that we could just get past this stage so we can get on to something else. But as you are raising your children, it's important that God has not called you to raise good kids. He's, got, he's called you to raise godly adults. So therefore, as you're thinking about your children, we should always be thinking about them as mature believers. Okay, if I'm thinking about my children as a mature believer, I am thinking about them within the stage that they're in and also the stage that's coming. Taylor and I were just talking about watching our kids progress and develop. This is a beautiful part of parenthood because what happens is we start to see these little human beings become more and more mature. What that does is that teaches us to be gracious in the moments when they are at their limits. When they are tired or they're hungry or they're frustrated and they act out, we can see them with grace because we see them not as a little person in the present moment, but we see them as what they will be. In the same way, God sees us whenever we are in the midst of our development and we get overwhelmed and we make a mistake or we are defiant or you fill in the blank. He sees us with grace because he sees us not as we are, but as we what we, what we will be. So as we are developing our children, as we are developing also our marriages and think, looking at our spouse and looking at ourselves and our growth and our development, we've got to think about the end first, the end in mind. So he uses this, this illustration of the farmer. He specifically says that he waits for the early and the later rains. These are the rains that come at the beginning of the season and at the end of the season. The rains at the beginning of the season, they soften the soil so that it can be easily tilled and can be churned up and it can be turned over. The rains at the end of the season come right before the summer, right before the harvest. It begins to loosen the soil for harvesting. What he's saying is he's saying the beginning and the end, we're thinking about all this together. They symbolize um, the, the entire agricultural season. So the farmer, he waits for the precious fruit of the soil, being patient about it, because he understands that the season has to be complete in order to harvest, right? In the same way, whenever we're thinking about our present struggle, we can, we can borrow strength, not just from um, the examples that God is, is, is providing for us in our community around us in the present moment, but also we can think about, okay, well, wait a second. God has promised that, he, that this is going to be... Uh, the end result of my life. Now, the steps along the way, they may not transpire the way that I think that they're going to happen, but I know that the end result is going to happen regardless, right? I can be faith because of what he, has say, what he has said in his word and how he's been consistent over time. So in the same way as a farmer, we've got to wait patiently on the Lord and we've got to trust his timing uh, in order to, to, to not just endure the moment, but to really be able to understand um, what's happening. If you remember back to chapter 1, verse 18, he said that we are the first fruits of his creatures. The first fruits are the very, the very first um, ripe fruit of a harvest. Okay, think about creation. Think about what God's doing in the world throughout history, right? He made a promise 
to a man and a woman in the garden after the fall, to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. And then since then, there has been a succession of promises and covenants that God has made with humanity that ultimately culminated in the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life. He was the fulfillment of all these promises. Then he died in the ultimate fulfillment of a promise so that we could be one with God and we could be in relationship with him. In the process of all those things, what happens is that um, God made a promise that one day he would make all things right. From the point of Jesus' birth and his sacrifice and his ascension to the age of the church, these are the final days, God has provided the first fruits of the harvest. That is his church, the believers. We are his first fruit. So when we are thinking about this agricultural season, this, this illustration, know that God intends to use you as an illustration to show people what he is doing in creation. In other words, you provide context to a broken world about what God intended. That means that not only do we have strength for today, but we also have strength for tomorrow. So he says, given all of these things, the Lord is he's coming, he's, is at hand, strengthen your hearts. This means to render constant or to confirm one's mind. It implies that our minds have to be consciously and firmly set on an eternal perspective. So consider this. Have you ever wondered why we worry so much? We worry so much because the devil works overtime to draw us away from an eternal perspective. Because if I can worry about today, the present bill that needs to be paid, the certain crisis that I'm under right now, the uncertainty of whatever situation, if I can focus on that one thing and lose the context of the future of eternity, then all I'm left with is what I can do. And in response to that, we become anxious. We become overwhelmed. And instead of thinking about things in the context of eternity, we think about the present moment, and we, we, we can become crippled by that reality. I heard something this last week in a podcast that really uh, was interesting. I didn't know this. That the same part of the brain that's responsible for anxiety is the exact same part of the brain that's, that's responsible for gratitude. So when it says in Philippians 4 that we should not be anxious about anything, but in everything we should pray with thanksgiving, consider that. That you on a neurochemical, a biological level, the same part of your brain that produces anxiety also produces gratitude. So we have a conscious decision about the perspective that we have. So he says, set your heart, set your mind on this truth, on the eternal truth of who God is and what he has promised you. This is a conscious decision that we have to make. We can't aimlessly wander through life wondering why we are so anxious if, and we ignore this truth of God's word that we have to make it an intentional decision to think about the entire season, okay? That's what, that's what it means to establish our heart. Then he goes on in verse 9. He says, Don't groan, brothers, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. When he says that we are supposed to have this perspective, we, are, we endure without complaining about one another because we're not the judge of each other. To groan against one another can also be translated to not, to not complain about each other, or in modern terms, to whine about each other. You might have seen siblings that go back and forth with each other, and they get, they're like two angry cats in a pillowcase. They're just, they just go, they get, they get on this turn and they just have this cycle and just, it just escalates. That's how the Father sees us sometimes when we're in our sinfulness. It's like, you all aren't doing anything constructive. You're just whining. You're just complaining about one another. You're just, Mom, he did this. Mom, she did that. 
right? And that's, that's what we do when we come to the Lord. And he says, what, what are we even doing here? Stop, stop groaning against one another. Stop fighting against each other. The implication is that if we bicker about one another, that we're going to be judged for it. So here's the key. The key to this is to understand the perspective of the farmer who waits for the crops to mature. That means that when we're dealing with our brothers and sisters in Christ, anybody within our community, we need to understand that God is the one who brings the fruit. God is the one who brings the increase, the, the, who brings the fruit to maturity so that it can be harvested. We can't get upset at somebody else because they haven't progressed according to our timeline. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'll read this to you. Uh, Paul is dealing with that same dissension in the, in, the, in the church at Corinth. And he says this, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. They were, they were complaining and debating about, okay, who is more important because who's being discipled by who. And it was between Paul and his friend Apollos. And he says this, he says, For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are, we, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God is causing the growth. So that neither one, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. So the idea is that we can't look at our brother and sister in Christ and judge them and bicker and try to find ways to cut them off at the knees because we are discontent with their progress. I'm a little brother to two older brothers and an older sister. I have no shortage of people telling me of how I'm not doing things right. In fact, when I was a child, I didn't speak until I was two years old. They thought that I was a mute. Turns out it wasn't because I have a speech problem. It's because my older sister wouldn't let me say a word. She knew exactly what I needed all the time. Philip needs this, Philip needs that, Philip needs this, Philip needs that. And those of you that, that know my sister, um, she has a very strong personality, right? The challenge is that we have a way of pointing out the flaws of other people, not because we're being, not because we're trying to be gracious and help them develop, but because we do it to try to make ourselves look better. That's what he's talking about here. He says, listen, look at, look at your community, look at all of your relationships within the context of the full season. Think about how God wants you to be, to, to be progressing and growing together. James is essentially calling believers to trust the process of growth in each other and not complain about our, perspective, our perceptive lack of growth. So does this mean that we shouldn't be concerned about other, other people's development? No, absolutely not. We should have a genuine concern and care for other believers. He says that in multiple places in Scripture. In Galatians 6, Proverbs 27, Matthew 18... All these passages point to we should have a genuine concern for our brothers and sisters. But what he's talking about here is a pettiness. He says we should see our relationships within the context of eternity, not our present discontent or irritation about somebody else's the way that they're living their life or what they're doing. The goal should always be to cultivate the spiritual health of the community. It's important to understand that while God has called us to examine ourselves and also each other by the kind of fruit that we bear, how much of it and its abundance is determined by His timeline, not ours. Look at verses 10 and 11. This is where we, we see that we're supposed to draw strength from other people. In verse 10, he says, As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. 
Behold, we count those blessed who persevere. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So he's, he used the example of suffering and patience, uh, and he talks about Job and the prophets. Now, here's, here's one of the things about perspective. So there's two ways that we can uh, view God, typically. One is we view God for who he is, his, his, his character traits. The other is we look at God by what he's done. We live in a generation that, upset, that is obsessed with what God has done. Because we want to be, uh, we, we want to think about his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy and his love. They're all at the center of our focus. But if we focus on who he is, we start to realize that he's holy and he's powerful and he has authority and he's sovereign. Those are the center of the focus for who he is. He's worshipped for who he is, not for what he has done. I had a gentleman ask me a question a few months ago. He said, if, uh, if I was to be an unbeliever, would I still worship God? And I thought about that for a minute, and before I gave, I, my answer was going to be, well, no, probably not. And he said, the answer is yes, you will worship God. Because he's holy, and he's God. And my belief in him doesn't change his holiness or his authority. At the end of the day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So God is worshipped not because of what he's done. He's worshipped because of who he is. That he is the maker of all things. That he is sovereign, he is powerful, and he is mighty. Now, do we worship him and do we thank him for the ways that he has expressed his identity, his love and his mercy and his grace? Absolutely. But we live in a generation that is obsessed with his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And as a result, what happens is that we have a low view of God. We see him as our buddy, our friend, our companion, our compatriot, but not our maker and our master. We soften language. We use words like, Lord and Savior, when it should be more aptly translated as master. I am not his servant. That implies I can his, my obedience is optional. I am his slave. This is who I am. This is who he is. This is not about what he's done. So these illustrations of the prophets in Job, let's talk about them. So he illustrates, he says, the prophets, they were faithful and they persevered in spite of not knowing God's full plan. Think about who these men and women were. That they, they, they existed in a time of history where they had no idea if God was going to keep the promises that he had made. Many of them, like Jeremiah, for instance, the weeping prophet, he never saw a soul get converted, ever. His whole ministry. He preached faithfully for his entire life. He was objectified, he was arrested, he was beaten, he was done, all these horrible things were done to him, and he, he felt like he was alone, and yet he never saw God's will, he never saw God's promises fulfilled in his lifetime. Take Elijah, for instance. We all know the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the, with the 500 prophets of Baal. And they're dancing around, calling, trying to get Baal to, to call fire down from heaven. Nothing happens. So Elijah steps up. He prays one simple prayer. And fire comes from heaven, consumes all of the, all of the sacrifice, licks the altar clean of all the water, everything else. And you would think that that would cause a revival. This incredible, dynamic expression of God's power. And yet the very next verses we see Elijah goes on the run because there is no movement of God. 
There is no revival. There is no repentance. He ends up hiding in a cave, hiding for his life. This is an example of of faithfulness. And yet, we don't see them through the context of their only their lifetime, we see them in the context of all of eternity, that they said, no, God is this way. And as a result, we look forward back through the lens of history and we say, yes, he is that way. In the same expression, we see Job as an example. He says that he was faithful. He's an example of faithfulness in God when it was uncertain if he would come through. The point that James is making here is that we have the privilege of looking back through history with certainty, having seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That's the words that he uses. Seeing the the outcome of the Lord's dealings. How do I walk through the challenges that I'm facing? How do I walk through my life with confidence? It's because I can, as I'm reading God's word, I start to realize that God he makes a promise and then he comes through. And he makes a promise and he comes through. And he makes a promise and he comes through. And he makes a promise and he comes through. If God has made promises to us, promises like, I will work everything for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose, he will come through with that promise. If he says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your clothing, what you will wear, because after these things the pagans seek, but seek me first in my righteousness, my kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. If he makes that promise, he will keep that promise. But in the midst of the daily humdrum macaroni and cheese business of our lives, it's very easy for us to grow discouraged if we step away and we lose our perspective of eternity. Job was in the midst of his of the most horrible situations. He saw his family killed in front of him. He saw all of his property stolen. He saw his health being taken away. He was pressed and crushed for the sole purpose to show that God keeps his promises. This is an incredible encouragement to us. What what God has done is is he confirms who he is based on what he has done. It's about who he is, not about just the things that he does for us. It says that he is full of compassion and is merciful. The Greek is literally, if you could translate the Greek literally, it means that God has great tenderness. Lamentations 3 says that God doesn't willingly afflict the sons of men. It hurts him to watch us revel in our sinfulness. But if you ever dealt with a, uh, a tantrum of a child, you know that sometimes you have to let them bear the consequences of their, of their fit so that they can understand that what they're doing is destructive for their own benefit, their own growth, because he, wants to, he sees us as we will be, not as we are. He's tender and he's merciful. All of our spiritual heritage should encourage us to stay faithful in spite of not knowing the details of how things are going to unfold. Not just because of what God has done, but more importantly, who God has been confirmed to be. So we walk forward in confidence. Our endurance doesn't come from God's deliverance. It comes from setting our minds on who He is. The promise. I guarantee you, if you read the Bible, you read God's Word, it is Basically, from Genesis to Revelation is nothing but story after story after story of someone being put in an an impossible situation with no way to have any kind of a positive outcome, and yet a promise is made and the promise is kept. 
We could go through and list a bunch of names from God's Word and say, well, you know, is my situation as dire as theirs? Am I about to be thrown in a fiery furnace like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Am I trying to convince my friends to be faithful to God when He's promised us like Joshua and Caleb going into the promised land? And yet, God always shows up. Because no matter what uncertainty we face, His sovereignty securely holds our fate. This is not a grit and bear it mentality. It is a call, it's a calling to thrive as we see the world through God's eyes. That means that we can walk with confidence no matter what we face. No matter what the insecurity might be. Now look at this last verse. Look at verse 12. He says, But above all, so this is important, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Hmm. Back in the ancient world, there were two kinds of oaths. There were binding oaths, and there were unbinding oaths. Now, essentially what they would do in Jewish culture is that they would say, well, if I swear something by God, that means that I have to do it. I'm going to do it. But if I'm really careful about my words and I just swear it, not necessarily swearing to God, then it's kind of up in the air. I don't necessarily have to. And they were playing semantics. It's, it's another way of, of you know, making a promise with your fingers crossed behind your back. You know, kind of give yourself a moral out. Um, his point here is less about being uh, truthful with others. Oh, sorry, it's more about being truthful with others and less about keeping your word. You know... Um, one of the things that I see quite often is, I mean, we, we, we've dealt with this for a long time, but within just as we have grown and matured in our walk with Christ and in our marriage too, is that, have you guys ever noticed that it's hard to give your word that you're going to be somewhere? Somebody invites you to something? It's like we give ourselves an out. It's like, oh yeah, I'm definitely going to probably be there. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely maybe going to be there to do the thing with you, possibly. Um, we throw in those little bitty words to give ourselves an out. Or um, my personal struggle is just not giving an answer. Like get an invitation in the mail. It's like, ooh, oh, don't know if I want to say yes to this because it's a Saturday or it's a Friday night, whatever, you know, and been busy. We got all these things. And do we really want to put this on the calendar? Right? <laughs> You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, this idea of sovereignty. What if, what if we had the mindset that God is sovereign in all the parts of our life? In our calendar, in what we need, in our ability to rest, in our ability to be fulfilled in the craziness of life? What if, what if God is the one who should be the one who, who determines what we do? What if it's not about having a weekend open or keeping our, our schedule open for things we'd rather do? What if it's about letting our yeses and our noes be determined by what's the kingdom eternal purpose and not what we just want to do to feel comfortable? Jesus taught us in Matthew 5 that our, our inability to keep our word is evidence of our sinful limitations. 
what James is doing is he's rebuking the church here. He's rebuking their perception that we will only be accountable uh, for the commitments that we make to God. Believers should respect all of their relationships enough to, be, enough to be truthful. If someone asks you, can you come do something or can you come be a part of something, be honest with them up front. When you get the invitation in the mail with the RSVP, you don't have to sit, let it sit on your table for six months. Just say no or just say yes. Give them a prompt and quick answer. Being truthful, hey, I would love to come over, but I'll be honest with you, this is what's happening in our family right now. I'm not sure if we should. Instead of saying, oh, well, you know, we, we totally would love to be there, maybe. Being honest and upfront with people whenever they ask you questions. When we respond ambigu- ambiguously to the situations in our life, what it does is, it, is it, it communicates to people that we're double-minded. That we don't know what we're supposed to be doing. We don't know what we're doing. If it's God's will that we should be truthful, that we should be committed to what we say that we're going to do, then we should do that. We should be people of truth, not people of ambiguity. Consider the, the, the ramifications of, of what this does to our relationships outside of the church, outside of the faith. The people that look at us and God's using us as a beacon to show them His grace and His mercy, if we are squirrely and we give them half-truths or we do our, we, we're just slimy in how we make our commitments, what does that communicate? If, for instance, if we're in the workplace and our boss says, hey, can you do this thing or, you, or you're given a task and you come up with all kinds of reasons why it's not your fault, instead of owning your responsibility and doing what you have to do, that communicates to them that you're not trustworthy. If you're not trustworthy, then what you say doesn't, it, what you do and how you live doesn't matter because you're not worth listening to. If we go out of our way to try to, to make ourselves comfortable and to avoid these hard situations, what happens is it communicates a, a, a diminished perspective about who God is. He says, don't swear either by heaven or by earth uh, or with any other oath. It's a call to truthfulness and submission to God's sovereignty, not a blanket prohibition against making a promise. This means that we're to be the type of people who make their commitments in light of God's sovereignty uh, let that be the controlling factor of our lives. We have to acknowledge that God is in control. Think about what he says, he said at the, at the end of, of chapter 4, that he says, if the Lord wills, we'll go and do this or that. Right? It's this constant submission to the eternal perspective, the constant submission to, okay, God is the one who's in charge. God is the one who's doing these things. So if, he, if, we're, if we're presented with a situation where we can, we, we can engage with someone, we have to first ask his permission, ask for God to give us wisdom. A lot of times we make commitments without actually checking with God first. And then we wonder why we're burnt out because we've been saying yes to all the things that, um, that are distractions. Um, you know, just like our Father in Heaven, our word needs to be reliable and consistent. We need to understand that when we commit to something, we've got to follow through with the best, to the best of our ability. Now, I'm not saying that you can't, like, kids can't get sick and you can't bail on things. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm telling you is that we have to be truthful and we have to be honest with people. Um, Michael talks about, me me and Michael talk about life in the fishbowl. It's one of the um, unintended consequences of being a pastor is that people are watching all the time. And based on how I live, people basically, whether intended or not, they, uh, they get permission to live however they want. 
based on, they take what I do within a fraction and they take it to the nth degree, right? So it's one of the reasons why I'm careful about some of the things that I do. Not that I am better than some people, but just, I understand that some people who don't know me will take certain parts of my life and they'll extrapolate it out. But living in the fishbowl means that um, when people watch you, that you're giving them permission for how to live their life, especially if they are unexperienced believers. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you claim to be a mature follower of Christ, and you make certain decisions or the way that you conduct yourselves in your relationships, you're teaching people. You're not just teaching people about your character, you're also teaching them about God's character. So how we live and how we conduct ourselves determines how people see God. So the question for you is this. Have you established your heart firmly in God's sovereignty? Have you established your heart firmly in God's sovereignty? Have you made the conscious decision? I challenge you to talk about this as a couple. Say, have we, have we made a conscious decision about this is the direction that we're going to live? This is who we're going to be. And this is how we're going to make our decisions. Have you firmly set your heart in your relationships? That's in your family and outside of your family. Have you set your heart, established your heart in your finances, your health, your commitments, your conversation? Have you submitted yourselves to the sovereignty of God, not just from a theological perspective, but in how you actually make decisions? The challenge is that most of us, we miss this by 12 inches. We miss this from our head to our heart. And we don't actually implement what we say is true. Decide today what kind of a person you're going to be. And the chain reaction of that is that's going to determine what kind of family that you have. The chain reaction is going to determine what kind of community that you live in, whether or not people trust what you say. And by extension, the chain reaction is that the world will learn who God is based on what you have established your heart on. Who carries the power? If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org. I've tried.